how many in this room uh, would consider themselves a, or has been involved in a choir in their life? How many? Probably quite a few, yeah. Third grade, sure, yeah, it's, that's some kind of choir, yeah, exactly, yeah, well, I was a choir boy in uh, high school, so uh, I got kind of first got involved in it when I was in middle school, but then really got heavily involved in high school. My sister, like, she's like, my parents, now I go to my parents, my parents, neither one of them have any, like, real musical ability at all, I mean, they just, I'm sorry, they just, and they admit it, they're just like, my dad, he can't hold a tune, my mom, she's like, she tries, but it's a struggle, uh, and so, but they've never you know, to, I mean, to their, I mean, not their fault, really, and they never got to experience that in high school and bit trained and all that kind of stuff, but my sister, my, she's older than me by a few years, she's like this amazing musician, and she started when she was young with the guitar lessons and mastered it by the time she was in middle school, and now she plays all kinds of instruments, and she's a worship leader or has been a worship leader in different places around the world for different times. Anyway, amazing, right? So then there's me, right? And I am not my sister, just so you know, but I was a choir boy in high school. So I had uh, four years uh, in high school of being involved in the concert choir and also three years of being involved in the uh, swing or jazz choir, uh, which was just a blast, and I, I loved it, right? And, and not because I was a great singer necessarily, but just because it was just a fun thing to be a part of, and the different trips that we would go on, and, and it's just always a fun group of people to be a part of. The, uh, the director, you know, uh, have you guys watched uh, Beauty and the Beast? Right? Okay. Uh, Mrs. Potts, right? So she's that, you know, teapot, right? Anyway, well, Mr. Potts in the shows, you know, he's, you know, whatever, somebody different. But Mr. Potts was my choir teacher. So <laughs> that was pretty cool, right? You know, you had Mr. Potts as your choir teacher. Anyway, he was a great guy and just a lot of fun. Uh, but I remember we, uh, you know, in the, in the concert choir, I kind of, it was almost like that was more fun than the jazz choir, because jazz choir was like 12, 16 people, right? And there was a good time in that, but there was just something about having 60 of us singing, right? I mean, if you've heard a big choir, if you've been in a big choir, there's just something about that that is just kind of awe-inspiring a little bit. Uh, I also got to go to a couple of like all-state choirs for a couple of years uh, in high school, and there was like, those, those were like 200 to 300 people in the choir, and it was just like awesome. I mean, to hear all of these different voices coming together as one and singing these songs in, you know, four parts, eight parts, 16 part harmony, whatever. I mean, it was just amazing, right? Uh, and, and here's the part of the amazing thing. It's like, there was a lot of bad singers, right? <laughs> in my high school, right? I mean, I, like I said, I wasn't one of the best at by far, but I was okay. I could kind of hold my own, but there were some people that really struggled to hold a tune. But when you put them together with 60 other people, all of a sudden, right? They're like, hey, that's pretty good, right? Because it's like you all come together and there's this tone quality that happens when everybody is together. There's this, you know, something that just transforms each of our individual voices into something that is beautiful, right? And so that you can't hear the individual voice, but you can hear the voice of the choir. Uh, so one, uh, one song that we did that, you know, because you know, choirs have soloists every once in a while, right? And so I got to do a solo every once in a while. And one of my favorites was we uh, did the song called Fire in the Furnace. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Have you ever heard of that song, Fire in the Furnace, maybe in your choir days, anyone? 
So it's just kind of this, this I don't even know what kind of style song, but it's kind of a jazzy style song, right? Uh, and, and it's just a fun song, but it's about King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And so I got to play King Nebuchadnezzar in this song. That was my solo part. And it wasn't really a singing part. It was more of a speaking part. And one of, one of, the, one of the things that I got to do was, you know, that tells you my singing ability, right? <laughs> Oh, this would be good for Sean. He could speak, right? Yeah. Anyway, but one of the things I got to do is I, I, I got to, you know, s- come up and, you know, the song's kind of going, it's kind of hushed tones and then it kind of builds and it goes back down, you know? And so I got to come out at one point in the song and everybody's kind of like ch- chilling, thinking, oh, this is a great song. And everybody's kind of behind me going, you know, doing their thing and it's kind of quiet. And I get up there and I get to say, fire up the furnace, get out of my way. Ain't nobody going to treat the king this way, right? And so... I would do it like that, man. I was just like going, right? It was like awesome. And, and I would yell it out there, and people would be like, whoa, what's going on, right? Anyway, I just, I loved it. I was probably horrible at it, but I enjoyed it. So, um, but the amazing thing about choirs is that even in the soloist gets up there, even when I'm up there, it's not about me, right? The, the, the song, if I just take my part and do that without the rest of the choir, then it's, it loses context, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit to w- what's going on here, right? And so you need the whole choir in order even for a soloist to have any value in what's going on. You need to have everyone coming together. And so even when there's a solo, it's not, again, about that individual person. The, what makes a choir great is the fact, or what a choir needs in order to be great is that they need to be all moving at the same time. They all need to have that same rhythm. Right? If someone's uh, you know, singing the word too soon, right, it, oh, that person stands out all of a sudden. Right? And, and so it's like, oh, it breaks up everything. So everybody's got to be moving at the same moment and be, be following the director. They, they need to blend together. The, the whole choir has to seek to try to be one voice in essence. You know, if you ha- we had in our choir, of course, in the high schools, always have this, you know, a couple of the people who are operetta sinner- singers, right? You know, and they, they're in the concert choir, and they want to show off in a sense where they think that their voice is the best, and so they always sing, you know, they overdo it, and they sound louder than the rest of the choir. They're not blending in, and it becomes all about them. Our Mr. Potts would yell at a couple of our guys all the time, would you stop being so loud? You know, just quiet it down. You need to blend in. This is not time for opera. This is time for choir. Uh, but also, every part has to do their their part. Every part has to sing their piece. They're part of the song, right? And maybe it's, it's a time when it's just the altos that are singing and everyone else has to be quiet. Sometimes it's just the bass that are going. And, and I always love the bass part, right? That's fun. You know, let's us do it. You know, we don't need the rest of them. But no, we can't do that, right? We, we need everybody working and doing their parts. The Corinthian, uh, this is, in my opinion, and what I'm going to present today, uh, this is an image or, or a picture or an illustration of what our worship service is supposed to be like when we come together and we gather on a Sunday morning like this. We're, we're to be a choir. We're to be a, a, a group of people that all have different voices and different abilities and different experiences, but when we come all together, we're one choir, seeking to make a joyful and beautiful and powerful noise to our Lord. The Corinthians in worship, they, they, were, having, they were struggling being in a good choir. They had some major issues. We've seen already just in the last, you know, three, four chapters, you know, Paul starts talking about the Corinthians and their worship in chapter 11. 
you know, and how they were conducting communion, right? I mean, they, they were feasting, and, and, and there was this, this, this uh, divisions that was happening in their communion. Uh, uh, we saw previously, even just in the church, that some of them were eating meat and kind of at the, at, you know, in front of others who were offended by that. There was this conflict that was going on. We see, and, and so they were focused on, we see that they're focused on themselves. They're focused on kind of, you know, what they had to offer. They're focused on, you know, what, you know, what their voice sounded like. And they weren't singing together at all as a church. They were also, some of them were striving for attention you know, the, the guy who was sinning in their midst in chapter 5, where Paul says, what are you doing? He'll get rid of that immoral brother, right? But they were celebrating it, and this guy was celebrating his sin. It was all, almost like he's trying to get attention. Look what I could do, right? And, and then the hats part in chapter 11, first part of chapter 11, women who, who were not wearing hats in order to draw attention to themselves, and, and men who were wearing hats, again, to draw attention to themselves. It was when they came together for worship, they were focused on themselves. They were striving for their own attention. They were trying to oversing so that they could be heard above the rest of the choir. And they were even, you know, we see the Corinthians also demanding to use their gifts, their, their rights and their freedoms. Demanding that, you know, hey, I can do this. I have this strength or I have this ability or I have this thing that I can do. And so they were demanding that they able to do that. Didn't matter what it did to others. Didn't matter how it affected them. Didn't matter if it brought division. They were trying to just all sing a solo in their time, with their words, whatever they wanted to do, with no recognition of the overall choir. So let's read our chapter this morning, our, our portion of Scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. <clears throat> Pursue love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their building, upbuilding, and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want all, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, I, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what you said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 
Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to his people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So the specific concern that Paul has in this passage is obviously the use of tongues versus prophecy in the church. And, and again, keeping in mind this choir illustration as we kind of walk through some of these details, that first of all, that uh, the tongues piece, that I want to I approach this gently and carefully, because I, I, I think there's, uh, there's so much confusion about tongues. First of all, just confusion about what it is but also confusion about how we actually use this. What is it, what is it for? What is it, how does it play out? And, and honestly, I can't stand up here before you today and say, I've got it figured out, because it is a mystery. And I don't think anyone can figure it out. I, there's just so many verses that, dis, or there's so little verses, but even the verses that we have, there's just these differing perspectives that come out. And it's hard to know for sure what tongues are. But just looking specifically at this passage, we see that tongues are two things that Paul draws out. First of all, tongues are something that our spirit is involved in, but not our mind. That doesn't necessarily make it bad. And for those who speak in a tongue or speak in tongues, I, I'm sure this is an encouragement for you, maybe, to be able to have that gift, to be able to pray in tongues, and, and that sometimes it just comes on you without you thinking about it. It just happens. But I would also say that probably most of you don't always know what you're saying in those tongues. You even you are, are, are at a loss for what is coming out of your mouth or what is going through your, your, uh, over your lips in this, when you speak in a tongue. And so there's this reality that, that there is a, a, a fusion in a sense or a coming together of the Holy Spirit and our spirit, which brings about this heavenly language potentially of maybe it's an earthly language we don't know for sure it could be both maybe but it comes across this language that is known by the spirit but maybe not necessarily by us and often for sure not known by others and so Paul is encouraging us to recognize that if you do speak in tongues it's a great thing and we should allow for tongues to be spoken 
But we need to recognize that we, that's not enough. That if we're praying in a tongue, if we're worshiping in a tongue, it's just engaging our spirit. We also need to engage our minds. That we need to... We need also to hear from the Lord his words in English that we understand, not just words in the Spirit. And so that we would recognize that that tongues, if we're going to speak that, or if we do have that gift, that that is something that we must uh, uh, practice and, and allow the Lord to teach us and to use in us, but also to look for the use of our mind as well. Not, that, not let that be the only way that we worship. Not let that be the only way that we pray, but that we would engage our minds as well. The other thing that we see that Paul speaks about is that, that, that tongues seems to be, in this passage, for yourself. I think this is part of the, the, what Paul's bringing out, a big part of it. He's saying, because the Corinthians were, you know, the ones who were speaking in tongues were like, when they gathered for worship, they were just going around speaking in tongues and that this was the worship service. That there was this sense of chaos, we'll get to order next week and next time, but uh, there's a sense of chaos because there's just all of these tongue speakers that are speaking all around the room without any regard for what is actually being said or whether anybody understands what's being said. And, and so Paul is drawing out this reality of tongues that tongues is really more of a self-kind of beneficial tongue. It's not that it can't be used for others. And, and I think if, if we understand a, a tongues or if, if tongues that sometimes is an earthly language, I think we can see this as maybe an evangelistic tool that, that God would give you the gift of ability to speak another human language in order to share the gospel with that, that, that person or that group of people. And so it can be a benefit for others, but in general, the main focus, it seems to be, as a, something that is for the self, not for the group. And, and this is why Paul is limiting tongues. He, he's talking about the worship service. He's not limiting tongues like saying no one should ever speak in tongues. He's limiting the tongues in the worship service. So that we would recognize that, you know, that is generally for your own benefit. That's for your own blessing. But in, unless you have an interpretation for us, then it's not going to build up the church. It's not going to help us as in our worship of God. But I think, you know, on a, on a bigger scale, we see that there are dangers, and this is kind of what Paul is drawing out. There's dangers in this gift of tongues. And this, those dangers still are around today. It's amazing how we are continuing to battle these similar things that I think they were battling in the Corinthian church. There are some that tend to think that everyone should speak in tongues. I had a good friend of mine who went to church, I went to church with in, uh, way back in my Ferndale days, uh, Ferndale, Washington days. And, and they, they thought that if you, you weren't a Christian unless you spoke in tongues. Now, Scripture clearly teaches against that. Paul even here, and he's like, no, no, it's not everyone's going to speak in a tongue. But some believe that. They, they think, think that tongues is, this is what it is. It's all about. And so we see some danger there of, of highlighting this uh, tongue speaking. Uh, sometimes it can be used, and oftentimes it's used improperly in worship. Some think because I have the t- gift of tongues that I need to do, use this in worship, and it needs to be up front and center, and it should be, you know, everyone should be able to appreciate this gift that I have. And again, unless there's an interpretation, I don't think that we should allow that to happen. They can happen on their own, in their own, in their own minds, in their own uh, prayer times, and in their own worship, but to make it a public a thing, I, I, that, that we need to be careful with that, I think. The desire for more than Jesus. It's amazing how some have sought tongues above Jesus. 
The tongues is the most important thing. And we even see, unfortunately, sometimes churches are, are drawn into that and the, the desire to, you know, everyone to speak in tongues. And so th- th- that's the focus, is that we're trying to find tongue speakers or to, be, to receive this gift because that's the, the thing that we should all have. So tongues are certainly dangerous, but I, I think they're dangerous just like any other spiritual gift. We, we need to be careful with them and use them appropriately. And it seems that Paul was concerned because of the Corinthians' abuse of, of tongues here, and so that's why he's addressing it. But I don't think we should be, we should be careful not to uh, highlight it above other gifts as well, in the sense that it's worse than other gifts. There can be some abuses certainly in tongues, but there's abuses in other uh, ministries as well, including the gift of prophecy. We see that prophecy oftentimes can be used in ways that are not appropriate as well. But so Paul deals with prophecy next. And, and, I, and here's one of the ways that I think it oftentimes gets uh, abused in a sense. I've heard it said, and it seems that maybe Paul is suggesting that prophecy is better than tongues. That prophecy is a, you know, a, the best gift to have above tongues. And I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. Again, I think he is talking about the worship service. He's saying when you gather... Don't just be concerned about speaking in tongues. I mean, tongues are great. They bless you individually and personally. And if you have a translation of what you're saying, then it can bless the whole congregation. And, but, but prophecy is better in the congregation because we can all understand you. It's about the edification of the body. It's about building up the church. And so that's why he's elevating prophecy, not above all other gifts. He's just elevating prophecy in, in uh, connection with tongues in the worship service. So, we, we, so prophecy sometimes can be, get this idea that, oh, well, that's the, that's the best thing to have. And so, yeah, tongues is great, but we should also, you know, we need to have prophecy. But also the other side of this, I think uh, prophecy oftentimes is confused for being foretelling, to be fortune tellers in a sense. That, that, that we would use prophecy as the sense that I can tell the future, that I can tell people the future, that I can get a word for someone and go and tell them what their future is going to experience or what they need to do next or, or this kind of thing. And, and understand that prophecy, you know, at times may have a, a bit of future telling or foretelling, but mostly it's about forthtelling. It's about looking at what we know about God, looking at what we've experienced with God, and sharing the realities of that truth. It's about God's truth. What is real? What is here? What do we hear and what we experience? So understanding God's word. Prophecy, this is basically what I do on Sunday mornings is prophecy. Not in the foretelling, but in the foretelling. I'm telling you what God's truth says. That's the attempt. That's what I'm striving for. And a big part of that is not just reading what the Scripture says, even reading it out loud, even though I think that's important, but it's also contextualizing it. See, prophecy is about taking God's truths and applying them to our scenarios, our situations, our life. That's what prophecy is about. It's about being able to understand how this truth that we read in Scripture that was written 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, and how, we can, how, that, how does that have anything to do with my life today? The prophet is always seeking to do that. First of all, proclaim what God's truth is, and second of all, talk about, proclaim what it means for us in our scenario, in our situation today, contextualize it. 
So tongues and uh, prophecy is the issue that we have. But again, I don't want to lose sight of the big picture. The big picture is that there is this conflict going on again in the Corinthian church and worship service. There is, you know, people who are focused on their own gifts. They're focused on their ability to speak in tongues and thinking that, well, because we're together as a church, that they should be able to share that tongue in, in publicly with everybody and, and everyone should have to listen to them. And Paul is saying, no, 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 wait a second. What are you guys doing? We need to bring this back together. This is a choir that only sounds beautiful when we're all working together. But the reality is, is we struggle with this in our church as well, and all churches, I think, do. Now, tongues is not a big thing in our church. I, there's many in our church who do speak in tongues. But, it, you know, we, I think we have a very healthy way of pursuing and understanding tongues in our church. And the fact that those who do uh, speak in tongues, they don't make a big deal about it. They're not trying to, you know, show it off on Sunday mornings. And that's a good thing. I think that's a biblical way to approach it. But there are other ways where we are divided on Sunday morning. There's other ways where we come to worship that are, it's not appropriate, where we're not really singing as a choir. And I've got three areas where I'd like to lay out for us where we tend to do that. First of all, it's our ministry gifting. Some of us minister best, we say, when we're able to maybe lead worship. And so that means that Laura, doesn't matter what Laura thinks, that I, I, I minister best when I lead worship, Laura. I mean, you heard my choir stories. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was a choir boy for like six years. And you've never asked me to come up and lead worship. Never. <sighs> See, I don't get it. I just don't get it talents that I have, they're hidden that she won't let me use. Anyway, but we, we look at our abilities, our gifts, and we think that we should be able to use those. And, and so we minister best when we're in the prayer team. We minister best when we're involved in children's ministry or youth ministry or women's ministries. We, we minister best when we are engaged in the facilities or the kitchen or as a greeter or leading Bible studies or whatever it may be that, that we all come into a church on a Sunday morning and we think, okay, I've got a gift that I need to use. But instead, we should be asking, what does God want me to do this morning? See, we come in with this expectation that God's given me this gift or I have these abilities and so I should be able to use them in worship because that's, you know, those are my strengths. But the question we should be asking is, when we walk in the door, what does God want me to do today? What is God calling me into today? What is the needs around me that he's wanting me, that he's showing me that I need to care for? See, we have a very selfish perspective. And I, and I think we as a church, the North American church has created this. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole church growth movement over the last 30 years has created this very seeker-friendly kind of church service where people show up to be entertained or people show up in order to get their needs met or people show up in order to allow, their, so that their preferences can be enjoyed. And so, and we as leadership in churches have created our services this way. We try to put on this good show in order to entertain everybody. And, and we want to get people in the door. So we, you know, we do all these crazy things in order to try to get people to show up so that they can be entertained, so that they can, so that they can be participating. 
You know, this is why we do children's ministry. You've got to have children's ministry. I mean, you've got people, families that come in with kids. Man, if you're not taking care of the kids, I mean, they're just going to leave. Do we see how that is not what the point of Sunday morning is? That if we have kids that we come in and we have a church that's going to take care of it. I mean, don't give me, I, get, I get the practicalness of that. But the whole perspective behind it is skewed. We show up to Sunday morning to worship God. That should be the focus. That should be what we're concerned with. Whether there's a children's program or not, I'm here to worship God and to help my kids to do the same. Another area where our selfishness in worship comes out and our focus on self comes out is in our worship styles. We would say that I worship best with maybe fast music or slow music. or Some like really repetitive music. Others like, you know, hymns. Some like praise songs or some like it really loud. Some just don't like music at all. And so we show up on Sunday mornings expecting that we're going to be able to worship in our preference. That we expect that the, the, the leadership is going to do the songs that I like, in the style that I like. You know, there's some, and I've heard this, some that won't even sing certain songs. Not because of like a theological stance on something. I, mean, I can maybe understand that. But just because they don't like the style of the song. Just because it's repetitive, they, they won't even engage. Just because it's not a hymn, or it is a hymn. And, and I don't, I, we don't, I, that's not what Sunday morning is about, is singing the songs that you want to sing, or in the style that you like to sing. Again, it's all about Jesus. And the question is not, what is, what is my preference? The question is, how is God wanting me to worship this morning? What kind of worship experience can I have? To those that would refuse to sing a praise song or refuse to sing a hymn song or refuse just to engage and to sit, even if you don't sing, I'm not saying you have to sing, but I'm saying that we need to all engage because God is calling us into worshiping him. And all of the ways, all the different styles are worshipful, even if it was Christian rap, and I really can't handle that, right? I mean, any kind of rap. It can be worshipful and is worshipful, but it's about your attitude. See, we show up and say that it has to be my style, otherwise I can't worship. But if we just came in and said, hey, this is worship, I'm going to engage and worship God in this, we grow in that. Do you understand that? We, we, we learn Preaching style is the next. No, this will be fun, right? Yeah. <clears throat> man, I, w I was, oh man, I was going all over the place on this one. It's like, do I include this? Do I not? Do I? Anyway, you know, some of us, we connect with certain sections of the Bible and we want the preacher to preach about those sections. Some of us learn best with a certain kind or a certain style of message. Some of us want it to be funny. Some of us want it to be serious. Some of us want it to be emotional. Some of us want it to be convicting or passionate or scholarly or logical or video-based or story-based or have great illustrations or applicable to my life. I mean, all of these things are the things that we come, this is the way I learn. This is 
the best way for me to understand and engage what God is saying. And so we expect the pastor to do this. We expect the preacher to do this. And if he doesn't, we can get really critical of him. Matter of fact, I think often, here, 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 just to kind of click, so you guys know where I'm coming from too. As a pastor, okay, just so you know, all pastors are the worst at this when they go to another church, right? We are the worst at being critical of the pastor that's preaching when we're not the one up there preaching. But I will also say this, we're also our own worst critics Sunday afternoon. So, so it's not about being critical, but here's what happens. It's, we come in and, and the pastor says something or, or doesn't say something the way we want him to say it. And I'm not, even ta- I'm not talking about theology. I'm just saying the way that it's presented doesn't match with our style. Or doesn't, we just don't connect with it. And so we shut our brains down. Or we think, you know, oh, I would have said it differently than that. Or, oh, well, I, I don't think that really means, I don't know if he really means, ah, that's, that's a little bit out there. And so we, and we get distracted by all of those things, and we lose what God is doing in the middle of it. I trust and I hope that every Sunday that I get up here, God is speaking, first to me and to you, but not because it's me that he's speaking to you, because he is just speaking. But we miss it so often when we let the man or the woman or the speaker get in the way of the message. It's not about hearing the message in a style that you can understand. It's about you listening to the Holy Spirit and saying, okay, God, what do you have for me in this? Instead of I learn best with, the question should be, what is God saying to me? in this message. The reality is, is we all come, I think, or not all, but many times we come to church with a selfish perspective. We come with the the idea that God needs to to meet my needs. And so we show up, we say, all right, God, you need to do this, this, and this. You need to have this kind of worship service. Okay, I know they don't normally worship this, but at least give me one song, God, right? And then we, you know, talk to him about the message. You know, come on, make the... Make the pastor be good today, man. He is always so just crazy and off. And, oh, man, to help him to, you know, say the right word at the right time, please. You know, or whatever. And, and we, we expect that God's going to do all this stuff for us. We've got this list of things that has got to do for us. And it's just, this is totally backwards. We should come to church prepared to receive whatever God has and to worship him with all of our being. Whatever, whatever shows up, whatever happens, whatever song is sung, whatever prayer is prayed, whatever preached, whatever message is preached. What we want to have on Sunday mornings is edifying worship. We want to be a beautiful choir. And there's three things that every choir needs in order to be a good choir, and there's more than that, but these three things that I'll draw out as conclusion of this message. First of all, everyone in the choir has to be focused on the director. If we're going to all come in at the right time, especially in an a cappella piece without a piano, right? A piano, you can kind of time it out. You know when you're supposed to come in and what note, right? But when it's an a cappella piece, if you, everyone has to be looking at the director. Know when to come in. 
when to take that rest, how long that rest is going to be, because sometimes the director's going to, he's going to draw it out a little bit more for a more dramatic effect. And if we jump in too early, right, it just, it kind of ruins the whole thing. So we got to wait. We got to be all focused on the director. We need to follow the Spirit's direction each Sunday. You're not following my direction. You're not following Laura's direction. We're all following the Spirit's direction. Every Sunday morning when Laura and I and others who are part of going, what's going on on stage get up here, our hope and our desire and our trying to focus our eyes on Jesus the whole time. We don't want to focus on you. We want to focus on Him and trust that you will focus on Him too. But that is the only way that we can be a good choir is when we all get our eyes on Jesus on Sunday mornings. Then we can all be on the same page. Second, we also, everyone has to listen to all of the parts. In the choir, you know, when you're standing up there as a bass, you know, when there's altos and sopranos and, and tenors and all these other folks out there, I have to listen to all of the other parts. I can't just close my ears and sing my part. I have to pay attention to when they're singing and how they're singing and even the notes that they're singing because I need to be able to blend in with them, to be at the right pitch and the right tone and the right loudness, you know, and, and I have to be able to know when to come in and when not to come in. And oftentimes we're in unison, other times we're not in unison. And, and so I need to make sure that the syncopation is correct. We have to listen to the other parts. the reality is is that God's voice in, in, is in each aspect that God is speaking throughout the whole hour and a half that we're here he's a part of it all he's directing it all he's the director and so we need to be listening to know when it's time to stand when it's time to sit when it's time if we disengage from the spirit then it just becomes just a service. It ceases to be about him. I have, uh, I, I asked, when I first got here, Laura um, and the worship team, usually second service would, they would leave the service, second service, because they'd already gone through the service once, and they'd walk out into the foyer, and they'd still pay attention to the service, but they'd be in the foyer, and you know, it's, it's a long day, and this kind of stuff. And so I asked Laura early on, I said, Laura, can you stay in the service, in second service? And the reason I asked her is because I said, I just feel like, you know, we all need to be engaged, especially those of us who are leading the service, that, that we would continue to be engaged, even though he's already done this once, that the Spirit is going to be maybe doing something different. And I feel like as soon as we walk out of the room, all of a sudden it, it sometimes can get lost. Not always, but it, it can. We all need to be focused the minute we disengage, as a youth pastor, you know, I go to a conference, a retreat, I would engage. If I didn't engage, then I didn't know what the Spirit was doing in my kids' lives. I had to be engaged. I couldn't just go, oh, well, this is for them. I'm going to go off and get a cup of coffee, and I'll come back in an hour when it's done, and then I can sit down with them, and we can talk about what happened. Oh, we all have to be engaged, because that's when we're going to hear what the Spirit is doing and see what's going on. As soon as we disengage, we, we lose that ability. We have to be able to blend together and that blending together comes when we're listening to all of the parts finally we need to everyone needs to sing their own part we all have a role to play 
Now, it may not be every Sunday that we stand up and have to be a part of something up front or even engage in, in, in the worship in different ways, but all of us have a part to play. The altos need to know their part, and they need to do it well when it's their turn. The soloist who gets pu- pulled out to come up and do a solo for the choir, they need to know the words. You know, the whole song can be messed up if the, the person doing the solo forgets the words. Trust me, I've been there. (laughs) Anyway, so we all need to know our parts, and when it comes time, when it's appropriate, we need to stand out. When God calls us in to use our ministry, our gifts, then we need to use it. When God calls us to engage with someone, we need to engage with them. When God calls us to be a part of the worship service in some way, we need to be a part of it, whether it be through prayer, whether it be standing and worshiping, whether it be in reading the text that we read, whether it be coming up front to share a testimony. We all have a part to, to play, and we need to make sure we're singing, we're doing our part. And then when we've done that, then we can all enjoy the glory, not only of God, but of being in this amazing choir. Right? I mean, when you, you're sitting in a choir, when you're singing in a choir, and you hear that amazing sound, you hear the chords that are created just from voices, you hear the quality of the sound, it's And this is what Sunday morning is all about. Making joyful and beautiful and powerful voices to God. But it only happens when we're all together. We're not trying to stand out. We're not trying to be one-up someone else. We all know our role. We all know our part. And we're engaging with it all, recognizing that God has got, he's speaking to us in it all. With our eyes focused on Jesus. All right, worship team, why don't you come up? We're going to transition now into... uh, communion um and uh we're going to do that by uh doing a song first and so i want you all go ahead and stand and uh we'll sing uh, uh one song and then i'll come up and lead us in communion and then we'll close the service with a couple more songs